Uh, I can't imagine uh, a better way to start out a Sunday morning uh, than baptisms. Uh, seeing Marv and Bree get baptized, uh, two different people, uh, different age groups, different experiences, uh, and yet both of them have seen the grace of God at work in their lives. And so uh, it's just an incredible privilege. I think it's an incredible privilege that we have uh, to be brothers and sisters in Christ to them. It's an incredible responsibility that we have uh, to laugh with them uh, during times of joy and to cry with them during times of sorrow. Uh, And I pray that we would take that responsibility seriously. Um, And I pray that if you don't know Marv, uh, if you don't know Bree, uh, go up to him and give him a hug, uh, say congratulations, uh, shake their hand, pray with them. Uh, just embrace them uh, as siblings in Christ. So, On top of Marv and Bree being baptized, uh, a few months ago we had a new membership class uh, for people who were interested in making Prairie View their home church. Uh, people asked questions, we kind of shared a little bit about our church with those people, uh, and many of them made decisions uh, to make a commitment to Prairie View Christian Church, to make this their church family Uh, And a few of those people are here this morning, uh, but I'm going to read those people off. And if those people are here, uh, feel free to stand up uh, when I read your name. So Andrew and Megan Bowman uh, made a commitment to join Prairie View Christian Church. I don't believe they're here this morning, uh, but next time you see them here, they're a young couple, sit over in this vicinity, uh, introduce yourself to them. We have Marv Hudson and Evelyn Hudson. Uh, They have both joined Prairie View, so... They are now a part of this church, officially. Uh, We have Jonathan Fenimore and Sarah Fenimore. Uh, They've been... You notice I use their names separately because they're not married, but they're siblings. Uh, They've been a part of this church really for a long time. Uh, Their parents are members, uh, but they're old enough to where they made the decision to kind of make their own membership decision. So Jonathan and Sarah... And then we have Sharon Nats, who can't be here this morning, but uh, she works a lot of nights. She's a nurse, uh, has dark hair, uh, helps out with communion preparation, those types of things. Next time you see her, uh, just say congratulations and give her a hug and welcome her to Prairie View. So, uh, with that, we are continuing our awkward sermon series this morning. And the whole idea of this sermon series is that we're talking about some uncomfortable subjects that we in the church are often tempted to ignore. But the truth is that the world we live in has a whole lot to say on these topics. So we as Christians and we as a church really have a privilege and a responsibility to try and discover what God has to say about these topics. Last week we spent time talking about homosexual practice and we came to the conclusion that Scripture consistently presents that as a sin that is unacceptable for God's people to persist in. It's a sin to be repented of, and we as the church have the responsibility of ministering to those people wrestling with that sin. We're called to do this with humility. We're called to do this with compassion, because after all, every single one of us is a sinner in some shape, form, or fashion. And all people are created in God's image. But we're also called to boldly speak the truth, which we do believe Scripture presents clearly on the subject. Now today we address another controversial topic, and this topic is abortion. Like homosexual practice, it's always a topic of conversation in our society, especially in the realms of politics and ethics and health care and women's rights. 
But as we mentioned last week, many of us can't just view this as a debate to be had or an argument to be won or some vague stance to be taken. For many of us, this is highly personal. Maybe you've stood by helplessly as a friend or a loved one got an abortion and had no idea what to say or what to do. You want to be supportive, you want to be loving, you want to be there for them during this incredibly agonizing decision, but there's also something about it that just seemed wrong. Maybe you were a woman who was pressured to get an abortion by a baby's father. Maybe you're a father who had really no say in the mother's decision. Maybe you've had an abortion before and you're racked with guilt. Maybe you've had an abortion before and you have no regrets. Maybe you've had an abortion before and you've found forgiveness in Christ. Maybe you've been turned off by the callous ways so many Christians treat women who have had abortions. You picture nothing but angry protests outside of clinics or extreme cases of harassment and violence against those places where abortions are offered. Maybe you have no personal connection to the issue at all. You're just passionate about it and view it as an injustice. And while I agree with you, it is an injustice, I pray that we would keep in mind that most of us don't know what it's like to walk in the shoes of someone considering an abortion. Admitting that is not a sign of weakness. Admitting that is not as though we're somehow compromising our position. That's simply self-aware. That's humility and that's compassion. To admit that we don't know what that situation is like. Now, admittedly, the Bible does not address abortion as frequently or as explicitly as it addresses homosexual practice. However, that does not mean that God doesn't care about the issue. It doesn't mean that God has nothing to say about abortion. Because after all, the Bible was written in a world where abortion was very common, a world where many people had the same questions about it that we have today. One of the things that you'll discover if you ever study history at any depth is that people back then and people today, we really aren't as different as we sometimes think we are. Often women got abortions 2,000 years ago for the same reasons many women get them today. Some women back then got them because they were scared of losing their sex appeal. They were scared because their contraception failed, which of course back then was far more primitive and less effective than it is today. Women got them because they were poor and couldn't afford to raise a child. Sometimes women got them to hide illicit sex that a pregnancy would expose. Some people back then viewed abortion as acceptable, and some people rejected it, just like today. Those who accepted it viewed it often as a means of population control. That way, poverty wouldn't run completely rampant. Some women accepted it in cases of being raped or if the pregnancy endangered the mother's life. Some who rejected it viewed it as weakening the family structure and a weak family could lead to a weak empire. Some rejected it because they thought it was unfair for a man to lose a potential heir. That meant everything back then. Some rejected it because they thought the practice was far too dangerous or far too barbaric for women's health. There were reasons some people accepted it. There were reasons some people rejected it. 
But you may notice something in all those reasons. None of those reasons had anything to do with the life of the baby. All of those reasons were about the father, or maybe the mother, or maybe even the health of the empire. And not only when you had people who rejected abortion, you had many who rejected abortion but had no problem with exposure. That was simply waiting until the baby was born and then leaving it to die somewhere, maybe in the woods. It sounds cruel, it sounds terrible, yet we see it today in the news. If that's the world in which the Bible was written, if that's the things that were happening as the biblical writers were recording the words of God, of course God has something to say on the subject. No, God is not silent on this topic. So with that, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 1. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. Now before we read Genesis 1, I'd like to establish the same ground rules that we mentioned last week as we address controversial topics like this. The first ground rule is the Bible is our authority for teaching and practice. The second, all people are created in God's image. And the third, all people are sinners. We must keep these things in mind as we discuss things like this. So with your Bibles turned to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into what Scripture has to say. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for fathers. Thank you for... The men in this church who have children who love you and love this church and love their families. God, I pray that we as a church could be a source of encouragement, a source of care for them, a source of provision and accountability for them. God, thank you for those people who don't know what it's like to have godly fathers. And yet, they've taken it upon themselves to break that chain. They've taken it upon themselves to be godly fathers to their children, or even to be godly fathers to people who don't really have fathers at all. God, I pray that you'd be with us this Father's Day, that we could appreciate the fathers that you've given us. And for those of us who have a hard time doing that, God, may we turn our attention to you and appreciate you as Father, as we've already mentioned this morning. God, we would be remiss if we were to pray this morning and not acknowledge that in Charleston, South Carolina, right now, there is a church that is holding a worship service that is experiencing incredible grief and confusion and pain. And God, I pray that we would consider the pain and the suffering of fellow believers, even those that are far removed from us, those in Charleston, South Carolina, those in different places around the world. I pray that you'd be a source of strength and of courage and comfort and peace in the midst of chaos. And God, I pray that as we read this morning that we would have open hearts and open minds and open ears to what it is that you have to say on the subjects that often strike a nerve with many of us, the subjects that are tempting to ignore. But I pray that we would humbly and honestly seek what you have to say on these things. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
While we mentioned that the Bible does not frequently or explicitly address the subject of abortion, there are two passages that are worthy of a brief mentioning before we get into Genesis chapter 1. The first passage is Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. That is a passage that addresses the accidental loss of a baby. The scenario is presented of two men fighting and a pregnant woman is accidentally hurt in the fight, leading to a miscarriage. Now, some people have viewed that as an important passage for this topic, but quite frankly, it's not really the same situation as a voluntary abortion. So we're not going to spend a ton of time in Exodus 21. Another passage to consider is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. I'm going to read that passage to you. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, at first glance, you might ask, what in the world does that passage have to do with abortion? Well, there's a word that Paul uses in there that that translation calls sorcery. Now, some historians believe that Paul could have intentionally used that word to include the practice of drinking liquids designed to induce abortion. Some historians believe that could be what Paul had in mind. And if that was certain, it would certainly be an interesting idea. But the truth is, it's not certain. It's not 100% sure that Paul was trying to do that. In fact, neither one of those passages, Exodus 21 or Galatians 5, are really solid enough on the issue to be considered a core passage when discussing this subject. But again, that does not mean that God has nothing to say. That does not mean that God is silent. We turn to a passage like Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and we see something about life in the eyes of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we looked at this passage last week and we saw that it emphasizes the complementarity of male and female. Adam and Eve are charged to be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve simply go together as one flesh. But in this passage, we also see the bedrock idea of the Christian faith, that all humans are created in God's image. All humans are worthy of dignity and respect and value as image bearers of God. And I do not believe it is a stretch to argue that that same dignity and value and respect that we extend to the human beings walking amongst us, we extend that dignity and value and respect to the human being who is still in the womb. 
And at bare minimum, a passage like this should cause Christians to think twice about viewing any human life as something that can be aborted. No matter how developed it is, no matter what that human life has done or hasn't done, or has experienced or hasn't experienced, this passage should cause us to take any question involving the loss of human life in any form, we should take that question extremely seriously. We see another passage in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David speaks about the power and the majesty and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. Simply put, according to David, God knows all. But then we get to verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. According to David, new life is not just some random chance function of a male and female body coming together. According to David, God himself has a hand in it. He pictures God as knitting together this meticulous work. He says that people are fearfully and wonderfully made by this God who is the author of life. Scripture continually stresses that God alone is the true author of life. That may be part of why we see you shall not murder in the Ten Commandments. And if God is the only true author of life, then conversely, he is the only one with authority to decide when a life will end or whether a life will exit the womb. God has that authority, not us. Richard Hayes writes, Whether we accord personhood to the unborn child or not, he or she is a manifestation of new life that has come forth from God. Thus, to understand ourselves and God in terms of the Bible's story is to know that we are God's creatures. We neither create ourselves nor belong to ourselves. 
within this worldview, abortion, whether it be murder or not, is wrong for the same reason that murder and suicide are wrong. It presumptuously assumes authority to dispose of life that does not belong to us. God is the only author of life from the very beginning. And thus it is not our job or our responsibility to end life in the womb. Look at Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, the final core passage that can help us think about this subject. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The third thing we see there, on top of all human beings being created in God's image, on top of God as the true author of life, we see that children are consistently presented in Scripture as a gift from God. Now, that does not mean that marriages without children are flawed or incomplete. They aren't. It does not mean that marriages that don't produce children are under some form of punishment. That's not it. Rather, the passage simply emphasizes that if you have a child, Scripture calls you to cherish it, even though in some circumstances that could even be painful. The truth is that that's just about all Scripture gives us on this subject. I'm not standing here trying to tell you that I have all the answers because I don't. Sometimes Scripture doesn't always just give us all the right, easy answers on a silver platter. And I freely admit that I have absolutely no clue what it's like to be a pregnant woman faced with this kind of decision. I can't imagine being in that person's shoes, especially in absolutely horrific situations such as rape or incest. I don't know what it's like to have to decide whether to save the life of a child or to save the life of the mother. And so while all this doesn't give us all the easy answers, all the easy responses to a tough question like this, what we've read so far at least gives us somewhere to start as we think about this issue. We see that human life is immeasurably valuable in God's eyes, every single one. We see that God is the only true author of life and that Scripture consistently views children as a blessing. So while Scripture doesn't always give us the clear, simple answers that we want, how do we think about this? What do we do? Well, another good place to turn is to view the history of the church. And while the history of the church is not infallible, and it's not as authoritative as Scripture, it can be very helpful to see what Christians before us believed and what Christians before us taught on subjects like this. In the history of Judaism, abortion was unequivocally rejected. In the history of Christianity, it has been rejected, the only exception being when the mother's life is at risk. In Christian history, it's been rejected as an act of violence, an act of bloodshed. Christians were known for not even going to the gladiator fights, much less participating in abortion. Many Christians did refer to it as murder 
in the early church, invoking the Ten Commandments against it. Many Christians viewed it as an issue of injustice for the innocent and the helpless. Some of them even brought up Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, challenging people to consider the unborn baby as a neighbor in need of love and service. Christians throughout history took stands against abortion in their societies. We talked about those babies who were exposed or discarded and left to die after they were born. Christians were known to rescue them and raise them on their tab. These things characterized the church throughout almost every single moment of its history until very, very, very recently. I pray that we would look at the church in the past and learn something from what they said and learn something from what they did as we consider this issue. Now, speaking of today, like we mentioned last week, a bunch of information about what the Bible says or what Christians believed in the past, that's all well and good. Maybe that's informative. But what does it mean for you and me? What are we to do as a church, and what are we to do as individual Christians as we consider something as heavy as this? Well, we're called to do many of the same things we mentioned last week. We're called to love unconditionally. We're called to serve unconditionally. Loving and serving the young woman who has no idea what to do, who feels as though she's in over her head at the thought of being a mother. We love and serve her. The woman racked with guilt, we love and serve her. The woman who has no regrets whatsoever, we love and serve her. The doctor providing abortions, we love and serve them. The activists looking to make it more accessible, we love and serve them. The man who pressured the woman to get an abortion, we love and serve him too. The woman who was raped, We love and serve her. Every single one of them, unconditionally, with the same love that Christ has shown for us. But like last week, an extension of love and service means telling the truth. We tell the truth that all of these people are created in God's image, and so are those unborn babies. We share the truth. That Christ died for these people, no matter who they are or what they've done, that they might be forgiven and reconciled and justified by the blood of Christ. We call them to repent of their sin alongside us as we repent of ours. We welcome them. If a young pregnant woman doesn't feel loved and welcomed in this church, then we have failed. If a young woman grows up in this church, finds herself unexpectedly pregnant, and doesn't believe that our church will love and embrace her and assist her and help raise that child, if she's not confident of that, then we as a church have failed. If a woman confesses that she had an abortion long ago and we stop welcoming her, we stop loving her, we somehow subconsciously start viewing her as a second-class citizen because of her sin in the past, if we do that, we have failed. We welcome people. We take a stand against abortion. 
You know, sometimes when we hear taking a stand against abortion, many of us picture voting a certain way or holding a sign at a rally. And while sometimes that may have a place, let me challenge you that those stands may be too easy. What if we truly took a stand by supporting a pregnancy care center, not just with our finances from arm's length, but with our time, putting faces to this problem? What if we were to sacrifice an early retirement to take in a pregnant young woman? What if we engaged in public service to address underlying problems that lead to abortion that we'd prefer to just ignore because they're a little too messy, too many gray areas, problems like poverty and education and racism and crime? What if, like those Christians who rescued babies from the trash heap, we actually took a stand that cost us something? We actually took a stand that required sacrifice. But maybe one of the biggest things that we can do as we consider something like this is something that we're charged to always do, no matter what it is that we're talking about or what it is that we're thinking about. We preach the gospel. We preach the gospel to those affected by this issue. I recently read an article by a woman named Kendra Dahl, who's a Christian, she's a blogger, And she had an abortion earlier in life, and she ministers to women who are facing similar circumstances. She writes this to women who are in her shoes, that she knows what it's like to be in their shoes. We stand confidently before God because of Jesus, our great high priest, who entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The precious blood of Christ has purchased our acceptance and approval. It is enough. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Regardless of the scars of our past, on our best days and on our worst, there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. So many of us in the church bear invisible scars. And while over time they may fade into the background, they still bleed for some. They are a constant source of turmoil as we face haunting memories and fight to believe that there is enough redemption even for us. Jesus has scars too. We cannot work hard enough to make ours disappear, but we can rest from all our striving and remember this, by his wounds we are healed. May we take it upon ourselves to preach the richness and the beauty of the gospel as loudly as we stand against sin and injustice in our world. May we offer the gospel for the first time those who have never heard that they can be forgiven, that they can be reconciled, that they can have a relationship with their Creator, no matter what they've done. May we consistently offer the gospel to those who have believed it once but find themselves doubting whether or not they could possibly be forgiven after what they've done. May we remind them that, yes, they are forgiven. And may we offer the only eternal healing for all of our scars, no matter what sins we're guilty of. May we offer the scars that Jesus got on our behalf. 
May we be a beacon of grace and love and truth and mercy and care in a world that is wondering what comes next for human life, in a world that is debating whether some lives are more valuable than others. May we stand out in a world that is confused, in a world that needs hope, and in a world that needs forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, this is an incredibly difficult topic to address, an incredibly difficult topic to wrap our minds around. There are so many nuances and so many circumstances and scenarios that it's easy for us to not even think about that may lead to decisions like an abortion. And God, I pray that we would address this issue with humility, that we would address it with compassion. I pray that we would listen to those who have experienced it up close. And again, I pray that we would be a beacon of hope for those who are guilty of sin. May we be a bastion of truth in a world that seems like it has a hard time figuring things out. And God, may we take this ministry upon ourselves, not being content to just view it from a distance or mourn how terrible the world is today. God, can we get out there and love people, no matter what it costs us, no matter how dirty our hands may get? May we show grace even to those people who we are somehow just a little bit tempted to think that they're not worthy of grace, even though we aren't either. May we constantly keep in mind that the scars that you took on the cross are greater than any scars that sin can leave on us. God, may we find healing by your wounds, no matter who we are or what we've done. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the core ideas of the gospel is that no matter who you are, what you've done, where you've come from, there's grace for you. And I pray that if you ever doubt that, talk to one of our elders. If you've never really believed that, Talk to one of our elders about the grace that they've experienced for their scars and their sin. Talk to them about what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to make that commitment the way Marv and Bree did earlier this morning. I pray that you won't leave here wallowing in guilt, wallowing in regret, but that rather you would leave here celebrating grace and mercy and peace with God that only comes through Christ.